Brothers and sisters, hear this good news. Jesus has overcome sin and death. He sits at the right hand of the Father, having been crowned with glory and honor. He rules over all the works of God, and all things are in subjection under him. Because he has overcome, he intercedes for us. He was made like us in all things, so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest, making propitiation for our sins. Today, we are forgiven. Because he was tempted, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Today, we have a helper. Because he is at the right hand of the Father, we can see the fullness of God's promise through him. Today, we have hope. And so today, we rest in his presence. Believe this and rejoice. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our reading of God's word today begins in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We'll begin in verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any idols, any likenesses of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but in the seventh day, This is the Sabbath of Yahweh, your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or the sojourner who stays with you. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And all the people saw the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. We'll now read from Matthew chapter 5. And beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others, 
shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If, therefore, you are presenting your offering at the altar, and remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponents, at the, at the law while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in, her, in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body should perish than for your whole body to go into hell. If you would take your bulletin and we'll read together from Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open your lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. been a few weeks. I was telling Todd that the, uh, the microphone gets all out of whack when somebody else is wearing it <laughs> who has an odd-shaped face. Bigger head with more brains. Uh, or that. But it, 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 
I really can't quite get it back. It takes a couple weeks in order to readjust it so that it doesn't rub wrong against the face. So we're back in Colossians, and I assume everybody has forgotten or wasn't listening in the first place. You know who you are. <laughs> About the arrangement of, of the book of Colossians. And so we're just going to walk through that, and we come today to, uh, to a, a part of the epistle where, where Paul is telling us to put sin to death. And it's the, the part of the epistle, this kind of message that some of you are waiting to hear and some of you don't want to hear. Uh, it depends on whether you see these sins in your life or not. I'll tell you, you have them. But Colossians begins, you remember, Paul is writing to uh, probably a relatively young church, one that hasn't seen his face. They heard of the gospel, they received the gospel. They've laid hold of the hope. So if you think back to chapter 1, Paul opens with a prayer of thanksgiving for the Colossians, what God has done in and through and for the Colossians. And if you, you just look back to verse 5, he says, I've heard of your faith, the love which you have for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And then he's making note, this is what's happened. It's come to you, and it's bearing fruit, and it's increasing. And so you remember that as Paul moves from thanksgiving in his prayer into petition, he's praying not that something would change there, but that what God would do still more of what he'd already done in, in the church at Colossae, that they would keep a hold, a grasp, a firm grasp on that hope that they have laid up for them in heaven. And he's, he's going to tell us, repeatedly in greater depth about what that hope looks like, how we grasp a hold of it. But the concept is that as we grasp, as we grow in knowledge, and this is particularly true of, of this epistle, that Paul is elevating wisdom and understanding as, as of utmost importance in laying a hold of firmly this hope. And, and that is going to be the strength that God gives against sin. And so we'll, we'll see what that means, how that counteracts some of our own tendencies and how we, how we fight sin. But so verse, verse 9 through 12, remember, so he's moved from thanksgiving, and then in 9 through 12, he prayed. He prayed the same prayer as he gave thanks for. So he, he went through the same thought lines. Lay hold of the hope. Be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so we see this, this helicoil structure in which you continue increasing in knowledge, you please the Lord, you grow in good works, you increase in knowledge, and you keep, keep going and, and ascent. And all of this is undergirded with the strength from Jesus himself. And then in, in the second half of chapter 1, remember that his prayer gave way from thanksgiving through petition into praise in which he, he recounted for the sake of the church at Colossae all that Jesus is doing. Jesus is the one who is from the very beginning has held all things together. He's the one from ages past, from the first world until now, is the reconciler who is reconciling all things to himself. And he wants us to dwell on that, that passage. Many of you may have accused me of dwelling too much. Dwell there more. Puzzle about what God has done 
in the highest heaven. We're, we're going to talk about that as well. And then uh, remember Colossians 1 verse 24, Paul then recounts his purpose, how God worked out this same hope in his life, how he gave way uh, to be a servant of Christ, following in the footsteps of Christ through suffering and death in order that the word of God might be fulfilled, not just in him, Paul, but in all the world, so that all might know what had been hidden from ages past but has now been revealed. And all of this is a setup for his purpose in recounting them and protecting them against a looming danger. There is a deception. And remember that Satan is the deceiver. He's working through different ages, and that deception takes on new twists. And so as we look at the deception that's particularly relevant to the church at Colossae, we, we do have to ask, what does that deception look like for us? At the church in Colossae, the deception was to look backwards, look backwards to the law, to the tradition and the commandments of, of men as a way of entry, as a way of staying within the house of God. And so he, he reminds them, do not be deceived. Don't be taken in by this empty philosophy. It will get you nowhere. And that's the rest of chapter 2. He's reminding them, Jesus is the fullness of God dwelling in man. If you want to know what God is doing for you, what the fullness of the promise of God in us looks like, look at Jesus. Because he became a man, God dwells in him fully. He was elevated. He sits at the right hand of God. He reigns and rules over all. And so look to him as the fullness of the promise of God. He is the one that we keep our eyes fixed on. And so he moves through what God has done for us, we too, we died with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, we live with Christ. And so all that was, that older age, has been done away with because already we have been resurrected with Christ. And that gets us to chapter 3. So I want to read Colossians 3 and we'll, we'll read uh, through our text today. If then you have been raised up with Christ, so this is assuming we followed along with Christ, we've been buried with him, we've been raised with him, we live with him. So if then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory." Therefore, put to death your limbs on earth, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. For it's on account of these things that the wrath of God comes. In them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also... Put them aside, all of them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and shameful words from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new man, the one who is renewed to a knowledge according to the image of the one who created him in which there is no Greek or Jew, 
There is no circumcised or uncircumcised. There is no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free man. But Christ is all and in all. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule, make decisions, arbitrate in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. If you would bow with me and let's pray. We come before you to ask, Lord, that you would be with us this morning and that you would speak. Make your words powerful, Lord, for us. Bore our ears open so that we can hear the depth of what you call us to, how you call us to it. Give us the strength and the power that we need to overcome sin, to put it to death, mortify it in our bodies. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us like our Savior, as you've already promised to do. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to work through this text, and the order of operations is pretty simple. We're just going to ask what, what Paul is calling us to do, why he's calling us to do it, and then the how. The how is a, a question we, we wrestle with. You all know that Christians wrestle with sin. Uh, John tells us that if anyone says he doesn't sin, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, some sins are respectable for us. Some we allow to name. We talk about them. We pray that God would put away our weaknesses. But there's a list of sins here that drive at the core of our sinful flesh. They speak to each one of us. And that, that list... Right off the bat, if you look in verse 5, we'll, we're going to come back to the therefore. But right up front, this is the overriding command of this, this section. My translation says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. But literally, it says, put to death, kill. It's an imperative. And not, not just think about them as dead, but get out there and kill them. Kill, and he used, it, it doesn't say body. Instead, what it says is your members on earth. Kill your members on earth or, or limbs. So you think about your feet that are stuck here on the earth. He says, put, put those feet to death. Now, this only makes sense if we take it in the context of the first four verses there. 
Let me remind you what, what Paul says. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So you got your eyes set and your mind set, so you take the head and you know, stretch it up into the heavens. And God has us, he's, he's pulling us up to look into the heavenly places. Think about John in, in Revelation. He's caught up into heaven. He's caught up in the spirit in, into the heavens to, to see God. And it's this idea that our minds are, are lifted up to look to what's going on in the heavenly places. And this, this doesn't mean that you, you walk around with uh, oblivion to what's happening on earth. We, we have to come back and explain that a bit. But when you have your mind up there, he's saying, put to death the limbs down here, and, and he's describing them, the limbs that are resting on earth. And these limbs are described with, with well, what are the sins? He's got two lists. Notice verse 5 and verse 8. Put them to death, and these are the lists, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry, and also put them aside, verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and shameful words from your mouth. So all these things that are resting on earth, he tells us to kill them. Notice what he doesn't tell us to do. He doesn't tell us to put them in boxes. He doesn't tell us to make cages and store them, store them away so that they don't bite. He tells us to put them to death. And there's, there is a difference. There's a difference in strategy of putting them to death. And I want you to see that, so we're going to jump right into these lists because there's something peculiar about these lists. You always have to ask, whenever you come across a list of, of Paul, why does he choose those specific sins, those specific Attributes. Obviously, we see in verse 8 that his command to us is to put all, all of these things, everything that's abhorrent to God has to be put aside, it has to be put to death. And so why does he start here? He starts in verse 5 with, with something we don't even like to talk about. Put to death the limbs on the earth. You've got your mind up in heaven, so put to death the limbs on the earth. And he starts with sexual Immorality. The word is porneia. In our culture and, and in the Greek culture, it's really not that different. We think, it's, we think it's all kinds of different. But every manner of disgusting sexual perversion is rampant in both and accepted. You think about the culture we live in, it's celebrated. You take every... Every perverted desire, allow it to give fruit. And then we lift it up in the land that we live in and we say this is good. This is something to, something to rejoice in. But of course, we the church don't walk away scot-free from this admonition. This is directed to believers. And so as, as we start out, we have to start out with the recognition that these sins exist among believers. In fact, he's, he's going to tell the church at Colossae, in them you once walked, this is where you came from, and he's telling them put them to death because they're not all put to death yet. We're kidding ourselves if, if, if we think that we've, we've 
finish this race of mortification. And so put to death sexual immorality. Remember I said the, the word is porneia. For those of you that study your Bibles, that's probably familiar to you. Uh, we, get, we, we recognize the word pornography from it. And so ev- every manner, from the act of adultery down to the, the, the excitement of every sexual lust among us, Paul says, put it to death. Don't allow provision for it. Don't play with it. It's inconsistent with what it means to be in Christ. And yet, and yet there you have it. It exists among us. I told you there's something interesting about this list. So he starts there with porneia, with sexual immorality. The next word on the list is impurity. It means uncleanness. And so you can think about this as somewhat more generic, but in, in Paul's list, it frequently goes with sexual immorality. It, it's a contamination of your character. And we're moving backwards from the act of immorality so that it comes out of your body, out of the limbs on the earth, the, the doing of the act, and moving backwards into the uncleanness of your character. It's, it's a stain on who we are. And so the, the, the flesh that commits sexual immorality, well, before that, there was uncleanness residing within us. And then you can take the, the next word on the list. Uh, my translation says uh, passion. The, the Greek word is pathos. So there's not necessarily anything wrong with passion. This particular form of, of pathos is usually associated with, with sin, but the, the root, well, Christ had passion, it was suffering, but in, in this case, that passion is lust. And so you move backwards then from the act of sexual immorality to the uncleanness of, of character, the uncleanness, the contamination of the flesh, and then backwards one step into lust. It's an overmastering passion. So what fills our body? And this progression continues. So move backwards one step there. The next word on the list is evil desire. So preceding this, this overmastering passion, you have a wrong-headed, a wicked, a wicked want, a wicked desire. And before all of that, then he uses the word greed, which could also be translated covetousness. So this, this is the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. It's the same, same word here. So we're, we're moving backwards from the fruit of the action, backwards to the inception. Now I want you to remember, we, we read Matthew chapter 5. What does Jesus say? He says, what, what, what do they tell you? What, what does the, the law say? that adultery is is sin, sexual immorality is sin. But I tell you, if you even look upon a woman to lust after, you've you've already committed adultery in your heart. So that's the first part of what we read in Matthew chapter 5. But then as you moved on, Jesus had some advice for us. He he told us, here's what you do. If If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. It's the same idea. Put to death, put to death the limbs that are on the earth. Now, 
I'm going to mix up the, the what and the how here for just a second. I can't, I can't seem to keep an outline straight, but in my defense, neither does Paul. If you just stop and think for a second about, about that, that order. The act of sexu- sexual immorality is containable in some sense, Right? You, in, in our modern culture, so you, you take the outlet of pornography and you, you, can, you can put net nanny on your computer. You can do without the internet altogether and, and wipe out at least some of, some of that opportunity. But what you're, what you're removing there is opportunity for that specific expression of sin. Now, that's not wrong. I'm, I'm not telling you not, not to do it. But that's not what he's talking about here. If, if, you, if you remove the opportunity, so let's take an extreme example. Uh, take yourself and place yourself on a deserted island. You, you've removed all opportunity. There's nobody of the opposite gender there. There's no computers. There's no books. There's nothing. Have you killed the sin? Paul wants us to see that if you're gonna if you're gonna kill the sin, the, the the guarding, the hedging of opportunity, it won't actually do it. It will show you the sin, but it won't kill it. So as you move backwards from sexual immorality and you get to the core, so backwards through the uncleanness that contaminates character, through the through the passion that's inflamed and the evil desire and the, the lust that, that we inflame passion with, all the way backwards, there's greed. Now, al- alone on the island, there's still plenty of opportunity for desire, for greed, for lust. You may not have an outlet with your body to perform those sins, the full expression of those sins. But the desire is still there. So I want you to notice right there at the end, the, the one that, that gets right at our heart, covetousness. He says, this, this is idolatry. It's not as if the, the sexual immorality is is just the idolatry, right at the core, the covetousness. This is idolatrous. And what does that word mean? It's, it's a, a word that means to want more. It's a compound word, to want more. To want more what? <laughs> to want more than what God gives. That's covetousness. To want what God has not given, or has not given yet, or has said no to. There's all different varieties, right? Because God gives all good things. Some things he says no to because they're not good. Some things he says not yet to because we're not ready. Well, covetousness says, I want it now. I want what you said no to. I want more. And so Paul says right there at the very heart of the sinful character of the flesh, this is idolatry because you're looking at God and saying, God, 
is not sufficient. God is not enough for, for me. He is not meeting my needs right now. And so there's, there's many ways that we can express that kind of covetousness that, that hits at the heart of us when, when we want what we don't have. And some of it, the ones that probably are particularly deceptive for us is because we're Christians, because at, at least um, some of the mo- more vulgar expressions of, of sin they don't appeal to all of us. I'm not saying they don't exist within us. They, they, they might. But as you're purified, you see the vulgarity for what it is. But w- what particularly deceives us as Christians is the not yet. You can't have it right now. And that's particularly poignant with, with sexual immorality in that there is, it's a good gift. Uh, Sex is a gift given from God, and yet God says to some people, not yet, not now. And so there's a temptation because of the goodness of the gift, but you can't extract the gift from the circumstances in which God gives it. It's no longer good. And so Paul's moving backwards, and so um, one, one example, if you... You take what Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it off. If uh, your hand, if your hand offends you, cut it off. Or what Paul says, put those limbs on earth to death. Well, where does that get you? Origen was a uh, a Christian in the late late one hundreds, and as a young man, he read those words and he was zealous. And in his zeal, he struggled with sexual temptation, and so he had himself castrated. You see, he's taking away, uh, he's taking away some opportunity, some form of desire. But in in the end, that's that's not particularly effective either, because as Paul points out, the core is idolatry. And idolatry doesn't reside then in just the member of the body. It resides in the heart. So if you think about what Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better to enter the heaven without an eye, without a hand. That's true. But as you meditate on his words, what you quickly realize is you have to enter having been put to death. Because the, the sin of the flesh resides in the heart. Before we move on, in verse 8, he gives a second list. You notice Paul, Paul, he gives there these two lists of five sins. They're picked out for us on purpose. And later on in verse 12, he's going to give us another list of five, five things to replace those, those removals with. So put to death these things, and then he's going to tell us, and we, we won't get to that this week. To, to clothe ourselves, to put on five new things. But here in, in verse 8, he gives us a second list. But now you, you also, we'll get to the intervening verses here in just a minute, but now you also put them off, take them off. Anger, wrath or fury, malice, 
slander, which is the word blasphemy, and shameful words from your mouth. I want you to notice about this list that it goes in the opposite direction. So it's a different subject category of sins. You start with anger. Ang anger, well, you can see anger, but not till it takes expression. It starts internally. It's unseen. Some of, some of us are, are good at containing it for a while. Some of us aren't so good at containing it for a while. But that anger begins internally, and then it, it grows. So as it moves outwards into giving fulfillment, the anger gives way to fury or wrath. Now, wrath on its own, well, just in the previous verse, we, we, we see something about anger. It's on account of these things that the anger, the wrath of God will come. So there is a right kind of anger, but that's not what he's talking about. We're going to link these up here in just a second, these two lists. But he says anger, anger gives way to wrath. You can think about a simmering pot, a boiling pot, as the, the anger makes its way out, and you meditate on it, you, you give life to it, you feed it. It's a little flame, and you have to feed that anger until it, it grows into rage. And when that rage overtakes us, it gives way to malice. Now, the, the idea of malice is an evil that's intended to hurt somebody. So as the rage grows, it comes out, can come out through your hands. Most frequently, for Christians, for us sitting around us, it comes out through our mouths, in which the intent is to, is to tear somebody apart. Now, it may be benign little words, may even sound loving if you wrote them on paper, but the intent, the intent is to rip somebody, frequently our spouses, your parents, your children, your brother or sister, to rip them apart. So as that gives way, he uses an, another word. The word that's translated slander is the word blasphemy when we talk about it with regard to God. It's the same, same word. So you blaspheme God, you slander your brother. Well, those two things are related, of course, because God's image, as he's going to remind us in just a second, rests upon us. There is no longer Greek, Jew, there's no longer uh, slave, free man, no circumcised, no uncircumcised, but Christ is all and in all. So as we look around us, Christ resides within us. He is all and in all. So when, when, when we speak out against one another in slander, it is blasphemy against God because His image resides upon us. So that anger grows into fury and rage and gives way to the, the design to hurt somebody, which we then produce out of our mouths with slander, blaspheme, to tear them down. And then his final word is shameful, shameful word. So we, we both bring shame upon ourselves, but we speak then the fullness of this expression of anger. So what do these two lists have to do with one another? You've got a list. You, you, start, you start with the fullest expression of sexual immorality, of every form of of sexual perversion, and on the other side, you've got shameful words. This one we don't like to speak about. This one we practice regularly, but also don't speak about. And then on, on the inside, you move downward into what you can't see. 
the desire, the anger. Well, they're linked together. Paul has some insight into our, our makeup so that at the core of the flesh, which he says is idolatry, is covetousness. You want more. Want more than what God gives. Now, there's, there's two ways to go with that sin. You can feed it. You can, you can feed it all the way to fruition. And sometimes you have that opportunity and sometimes you don't have that opportunity. You, you, you may feed it up to the, the point of, of passion, but you may not have the opportunity to express every form of sexual immorality. It may be taken away from you. So what happens then? You have the desire, but no opportunity. Well, we tend to go the other way. We get angry. Um, maybe we, we know better, so we don't express the opportunity, but we don't kill the desire. We don't put it to death. Instead, it's there in the background, simmering. And so when we look around at our brothers, our sisters, our husbands, our wives, our children, our parents, we get angry. Uh, anger expressed because either they have exactly what we think we want or you name it, whatever reason, because they're walking on the right-hand side of the road, because they look happy that day and we're not happy. So you, you get angry. And that anger then floods back out into rage and fury, malice, slander, and shameful words. Paul says all of this, collapse it all. The, 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 the desire, the anger, at the root, this is idolatry. We have to call these sins what they are. God hates them, but He's not a capricious God, as, as, as if these sins were good things that He's withholding from us. Instead, you can see it on the extreme, extreme edges. You can see it, um, you know, for, for most of you, you're probably not going to be tempted by a drag queen. But you name your sin, there's an outlet you'll find and you can see that the end of it, it doesn't feed anything good, anything desirable. When you give way to the lust of the flesh, the end of it is abhorrent. Now, as we progress along the path of that sin, our eyes get blinded and it seems less and less abhorrent until one day it overtakes us and, and we, can't even, we, can't, we don't even eyes, eyes to see what's happened to us. Well, this kind of sin, sexual immorality, shameful speech, right down to covetousness and anger that reside in the heart, they're against the very nature of God, and they stand against what God has made us to be. And the sin themselves, there's no fruit in it. In fact, the sin itself is already judgment. You can, you can see that in somebody else, right? They, they feed the flame of, of desire, the flame of anger. Does it give them anything they actually want? The answer is no. It produces more and more judgment. Think about, think about Romans chapter 1. Let me, let me just read that for you. 
The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So that as you feed the flame of, of that desire, of that anger, you're suppressing, covering up the truth that God has uncovered. And the reason why, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. So as you progress in sin, the vision goes out, the darkness comes in, and while claiming to be wise, so they held to a form of wisdom, that kind of wisdom Paul's talking about in, in the epistle, a form of wisdom, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Notice they're, they're talking about idols. When you think about sexual, sexual immorality, it's the same thing. They're exchanging the glory that God has stored up for us and exchanging it for something that's it's not even just temporary and fleeting. It in and of itself has n no value. It, less, than, less than no value. It in and of itself is judgment. So you read in Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their heart. The very judgment of God is to give you more of what you want. So when we don't put these kinds of desires, these lusts to death, the judgment of God is to give, give more. And the giving the more produces no joy, no thankfulness, no happiness. Instead, you have this, this rotunda of sin in which you go round and round and round and round. And you can see it in the, the dead eyes of people around us. They have no life in them. And so Paul says, put them to death. Well, that's not enough of a reason why. Look in verse 6 and 7. For it's on account of these things that the wrath of God comes. So God despises our covetous hearts, our anger-filled bitter, vitriolic tongues, our lustful eyes, our constantly wanting what he doesn't give. And it's on account of these things that the wrath of God comes. Now secondly, why, why, why put them to death? Verse 7, we already mentioned this, because, because in them you once walked and you were living in them. We don't have to put to death what doesn't exist among us. But because we walked in these sins, because we lived among the people who reveled in these kinds of things, we must put them to death. Why put them to death? Notice there in verse 7, there is... A, a, one extra word. In them you also once walked. This is important. We put these kinds of sins to death. We don't cage them. We don't hedge them. We kill them. Because 
It's what we once were. Not anymore. The message that Paul is telling the church at Colossae is this is not who you are now. You have been put to death with Christ already. Here's the paradox of the Christian life is we've already been put to death and now we have a command, therefore put to death. So your earthly body's already been put to death. Now put it to death. How do you do that? Why do you do that? Back to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So you can see two, two reasons embedded in there, in that you have been raised up with Christ. So why, put, why mortify sin in your flesh? Why work at it, put it to death, because you've been raised up with Christ, because this is true of you, this is who God calls you. As his children, we reside in the heavenly places. And secondly... Because there, our life is hidden. Remember he says, all the fullness of treasures of wisdom and knowledge, everything that you think you're missing, it resides in Christ. You also now reside in Christ. You have already what you think you're missing. Just look. Open up your eyes. The world can't see it. It's hidden with Christ. And when he's revealed, our life will be revealed with him in glory. But for right now, and this gets to the how. How do you do it? Well, you call the sin what, they, what it is. You name it. Instead of sweeping it under the rug, instead of calling it a mistake or a, a struggle, it's sin. If, if, if you're looking at pornography, it's sexual immorality. God hates it. If you have a lustful heart, God hates it. If you speak slander against your brother, God hates it. It's sin. But the strategy for putting these sins to death, here in Colossians, and of course Paul has a lot to say about this through, through the Bible, but here in Colossians, the parallel command is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, set your mind on the above things. He just got finished telling us at the end of chapter 2 that there's these, uh, an old arrangement, elementary principles, the stoicheia of the world. And he, he, he challenged us. Why, as if you were living in that world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men? These are words which have to be sure, a word of wisdom and self-made religion and humility and neglect of the body, but they have no value against fleshly indulgence. So looking backward in their situation, he's saying, all right, if you go back to the temple, 
If you go back to circumcision, that gives you no value. It, it does nothing in your fight against the flesh. It, adding adding a, another, another hedge will not give you victory over desire, over covetousness. It will take away opportunity. Instead, he says, here's what I want you to do. Set your mind in heaven. Look at Christ. Because if you don't kill sin at the core, it will just rear its head somewhere else. So we already see through these, these lists, right? you can take away the opportunity for sexual immorality. That's possible. The, the, the physical expression of it. And then what will happen? If the desire still exists in your heart, you'll go the other way. You'll become angry, embittered, vitriolic in your speech. And it will start coming out a different member of your body. He says no, you, you have to get rid of it at the core because all of it is idolatry. And you put it to death by right worship by looking at God in heaven, by Christ seated at the right hand of God, and we learn to worship Him truly. Set your mind on the above things, not on the things that are on the earth. Now, as I said before, that doesn't mean that you got your head in the clouds and you don't care about what's going on. Rather, when we set our mind on the above things, we think about what, what Jesus is up to in the heavens, what has happened to him, what God has done for him in raising, raising him to the right hand of God, we see, we see what God is going to do for us. That's the message in the book of Hebrews. We see Jesus seated at the right hand of God to whom all things are subject. And Jesus is taking us with him into glory. And so all the things that we feel like we're missing, God will abundantly supply, and he's given us evidence in the form of his son. So it's both, he both serves as the substitute, having removed our sin, having taken away so that we're dead in him, but also we look to him as the one who sits at the right hand of God, who is the man who's received all glory and honor from God himself, and say, this is my home, this is where I'm going, into God's house to be with Christ, to rule with Christ. My life is hidden with Christ and God, and so all of these other things, these desires, fade away. Sometimes you might wonder, as you read through the Bible or as you go to a Bible study, what the point of studying that particular text is. It seems to have no no bearing on your current struggle. You've got problems, and that particular passage says nothing to you. And yet it does. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Set your mind to what's happening in heaven. And then we look back at earth with the vision that God supplies us. So we look at sin the way that he looks at sin. And the way that he looks at sin, Paul tells us right here. It's not just sexual immorality. It's, it's, it's not just lust, which is approved of and celebrated in the culture around us. It's idolatry. That's how God looks down at our sin. And so, um, Paul says this in other, other places, in other ways. He says, don't be transformed to the world, but rather be Conformed. I don't know why it's running away from me right now. 
don't be conformed to this world. That's because I started quoting it wrong. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. A uh, hundred years ago, they, they, called, they called this the, your affection. Set your affections on Christ. This is the renewing of your mind. And obviously, there's, there, there can be a trap there where you, you study, you study, you study, and there's no effect. But that's not what Paul's talking about. You set your mind on Christ. Fix your mind on what's happening on the heavenly things. You renew your mind, your heart, what you desire. And then would be transformed to prove the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So when you're studying, whether it's Genesis and you're looking at what God did in creation and, and the beginning of sin, or it's Revelation and you're, you're, you're looking at, at all that warfare as John is caught up into the, the heavens and he sees what's going on, all of it, is intended for us to look at, to understand, to see the fullness of what God did in Jesus so that we have this hope fixed and steady that God is doing that for us. We're already called children of God. Mysteriously, we're already said to be put to death and raised up to life, and our life exists in Him. And we need to have eyes to see. So we start with the renewing of our mind, but it doesn't stop there. It works its way out through our limbs, through our words, through the, through the way that we view sex all of it, all of it stems then from how we look at Jesus, from worshiping him first. So we're going to continue in this passage next week, but I, I want to, to encourage you, meditate then on what God is doing in us as he calls us to put these things to death. We do it starting, starting with setting our mind on Christ. He's given us his word. He's given us his word that he calls the sword of the spirit that comes in. And as you sit there and you're hearing these words, and for some of you, just, just discussing sexual immorality, just discussing anger is like a two-edged sword that cuts you open. Now that's what God's word does to us. It cuts us. It cuts us in order to put that sin, that earthly member to death so that what is true of us will be true of us. We who are God's children will be holy in all purity and righteousness. If you would stand and let's pray. Father, we, your children, want to be marked by your deeds. Lord, I, I, I pray that you would help us to see clearly the deception of the deceiver, who on the one hand wants us to think that there is no hope in putting sin to death, and on the other hand wants us to take strategies that provide no real value in putting sin to death. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make us apt to, to wrestle and struggle and fix our mind on you, to take every moment captive in, in thinking and meditating about 
you. Give us eyes to see clearly what you have in store for us, what you've already demonstrated in the person and the work of Christ, so that we'll be filled with a a good desire, a holy desire, one which you will fulfill. Lord, we, we, we want this among us, and so we pray that you would strengthen us through your Spirit to do just that. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.